Well, good morning. Are you a rhino or a porcupine? <laughs> Kids, that's a, that's a lesson for adults too, for sure. Well, as Pastor Dave uh, said, um, we're, uh, we're doing a bit of a swap today, uh, which is why I'm in the pulpit this morning. And uh, he will be attending and, and bringing a Devo tonight at, at youth group, um, which we look forward to. Well, our daughter, Karis, was born a little over seven and a half years ago. And at the time, Cherry and I were living down in Massachusetts. And we experienced all the joys and new stages that accompany nine months of pregnancy leading up to the due date. We attended birthing class, we read books, we received advice from family and friends. And then the day finally came when we welcomed Karis into the world. And I remember being overwhelmed with joy at receiving this new life into our family. But I had no context, no way to even begin to imagine how this would change things for Cherry and me. With the introduction of, of Karis into our family, a sudden shift occurred. No longer could we just go out to dinner on a whim. We had another family member who required time and attention. Constant, fresh diapers, a full belly, rocking to sleep. And our own emotional needs as a couple inevitably had to shift. Our patterns and ways of life that the two of us were used to had to change. Our family dynamics had to rebalance and adjust. And I think that's a little bit of what it must have been like for the early church in Acts 15. See, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their missionary journey. It's been triumphant, exhilarating work. They've endured persecution, and yet the church has continued to grow. Upon returning to Antioch, they report that God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. New members have been added to the church family. Momentum has been building, and they've seen an a dramatic increase in Gentile converts. But this also presents a challenge. How will the church adjust to the new reality that their mission has brought about? The family balance was disrupted. It was thrown off. How will the church respond? You see, the church up to this point has been made up of mostly Jews. And from the Jewish perspective, these Gentile con converts, they're not used to Jewish customs and traditions. They're not used to the Jewish patterns of life. They're being brought into the family, enjoying the benefits of the family, but without being circumcised. In short, they're becoming followers of Jesus without becoming Jewish. So with the sweeping number of Gentiles entering the church, questions begin to emerge. What's the means by which Gentiles belong to the community of believers? Could they be converted without circumcision? Or would they, should they, 
become circumcised as part of becoming the people of God. What is required to be a member of this family? We see the church responding to these questions in Acts 15. This is a monumental moment in the book of Acts. The direction of the mission throughout the rest of the book hinges on this very moment. The church, our church here, would look radically different today were it not for the leadership in the Jerusalem church at this crucial moment. As we read our passage today, we're going to see how the church responds to keep their mission on target by pressing in and addressing gospel distortions and by pressing on as a family who bears God's name. Let's pray together as we uh, open the word this morning. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears, our hearts and our minds as we open your word this morning. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to us, would be convicting us, would be drawing us to the truth. Be with us, Lord, as we open your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 11. Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. 
So men from Jerusalem have made their way to Antioch, insisting to the Gentiles that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. And we read that Paul and Barnabas are brought into sharp dispute and debate with them. And in verse 3, the church sends them on their way, Paul and Barnabas, to Jerusalem. And as they travel throughout Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. Even on their way to Jerusalem to deal with this issue, they continue to encourage all the believers still on mission by sharing testimony and spreading news of their journey. Once they arrive in Jerusalem, we find out in verse 5 that it's a group of Pharisees who are calling for the circumcision of the Gentiles. And I want to spend just a little bit of time unpacking who these people are. We know Pharisees from the gospel accounts. And What's presented here is consistent with our image of them. They're devout, rule-following Jews who are concerned, sometimes overly concerned, with keeping the law of Moses as a sign of their devotion. They're often seen as the hypocritical religious establishment in the gospel accounts. And Jesus has some harsh words for them. But who are these men? The men in verse 5. Could these be the false brothers that Paul describes in Galatians 2? Or are these genuine believers? Scholars disagree on exactly where and how the events of Acts 15 and Galatians 2 fit together. And I want to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions but instead read plainly what's before us in Acts 15. The text tells us that these are believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. Furthermore, Peter addresses them, included with the whole assembly, as brothers in verse 7. And so does James. If we look ahead to verse 13, he says brothers as well. Everything in our text indicates that these are believers who are Pharisees. Individuals who believe in Jesus Christ and belong to the party of the Pharisees. We know this is possible because Paul himself was a Pharisee. So these are, in fact, their very brothers, members of the same assembly who are now raising this issue and in doing so, revealing their misunderstanding of the gospel by saying the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Charles Spurgeon writes, The old leaven showed itself. How closely do old ways and thoughts cling to even regenerate men? So the leaders press in. In fact, addressing these gospel distortions is what keeps the mission on target. The concern of these believers was not dismissed. They were not ridiculed or silenced. It was not pushed aside. Instead, the apostles and elders met to consider, verse 6, this question. And it is only after much discussion, verse 7, that Peter speaks. 
Peter reminds them that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish believers did. This should be proof enough for his audience. There's divine evidence, divine approval. Jews and Gentiles have received the Spirit. Peter doesn't stop there. He then proceeds to remind them of the gospel. And we land on this beautiful Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 moment here in the book of Acts. He says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. In the last two chapters that we read, chapters 13 and 14, the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles. Now, It's being preached again to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You are saved by grace, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. When we're on mission, we must recognize the importance of continuing to remind one another of the true gospel. There's much that can be said and much we can learn about how the church deals with conflict here. And I think it's important to distinguish between two different kinds of conflict. There are some conflicts that distract us from mission. We've already seen some of these in the book of Acts, like when the Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews are quarreling over the distribution of food in Acts chapter 6. Or when Barnabas and Paul end up um, splitting ways at the end of Acts 15, actually, over whether or not John Mark should come with them. But there are other conflicts, as in this case, that touch on the very core of the mission. In both cases, it matters how we do conflict. But when we approach conflict that touches on the core of mission, that conflict quickly reveals what we believe about the gospel. Here it revealed fundamental, a fundamental mistruth about the gospel on the part of the believer Pharisees. According to them, the gospel equals Jesus plus circumcision and the law of Moses. Friends, this temptation to add something to the gospel is not new. It may not be Jesus plus circumcision, but it may be Jesus plus my good behavior. Jesus plus the depth of my quiet time. Jesus plus my political affiliation. Jesus plus my traditions. Jesus plus my family heritage, which could also be what uh, the Jews are struggling with in this chapter. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Let Let me read that again. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. 
Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but their day-to-day existence, in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Friends, this is a dangerous twist. When we flirt with trusting our own abilities and performance for salvation, we end up mocking the grace of God. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, without a deep grasp of grace, we become wedded to our cultural styles and patterns as the right way to be a Christian. And we despise other cultural patterns. We secretly, or not so secretly, despise people of races and cultures or politics different from our own as a way to patch up a righteousness of our own. This exactly describes the Pharisaic believers in Acts 15. They were in danger of diluting the gospel of grace and wedding themselves to cultural styles and patterns as markers for salvation. Could it be that we are in danger of this very thing in the church today? And if so, will we press in? Yes, it may reveal some of our own misconceptions and misunderstandings of the gospel, just like it did for the early church. And that's hard, and it can hurt. But we also have an opportunity to remind one another of the true gospel, just like Peter did, that we might learn to walk more fully in the marvelous and all-sufficient grace of God through Jesus Christ that you and I depend on every single day. Let's take a look now at the second half of our passage, beginning in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them 
telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So James, the brother of Jesus, speaks. And he tells the assembly that God has intervened and called a people for his name from the Gentiles. We see this idea showing up in verse 14 and verse 17. This statement that God has intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles would have been significant for the Jewish hearers, as they would likely have seen themselves as the ones who exclusively bear God's name. We see this phrase, bearing God's name, showing up several times in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 7:14, "If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." Exodus chapter 20, verse seven: "You shall not literally bear." the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who bears his name in vain. That sheds some new light on the third commandment. Bearing the name of God isn't just about misusing his name with our words. We also have this quotation from Amos, which James uses as an argument from Scripture to show that God's plan from the beginning was that the Gentiles might also bear the name of God. God is now grafting in a new people, the Gentile people, to bear his name. Well, what does it mean to bear a family name? Just this last week before Bible study, I introduced one of our youth to a visiting parent. And when the youth said their last name, The parent responded with, oh, you don't know me, but I know your family. I know the family name who you bear. Similarly, growing up as the youngest of four kids who had all been through the same school system, I frequently heard, oh, you must be an Anderson. This was usually said in a positive light. When you bear a name, you represent it. You proclaim it. And the hope is that you would honor it through your actions. Just as a child bears the name of their family, so we as the people and family of God bear his name to one another and the world. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says, If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are part of this family. And there's a responsibility that comes with bearing a family name. James now turns to practices of the Gentiles that the Jews might find challenging. In verses 19 and 20, James says, 
We should write to the Gentiles, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Well, wait a second. Isn't this a yoke of sorts? I thought we'd just gotten through this. Don't add to the gospel. Well, just as there's a responsibility on the part of the Jews to not pervert the gospel by adding to it the requirement of circumcision and the law, now we shift to the Gentiles. There is a responsibility on them to turn from immorality and idolatry. These practices that James mentioned were associated with pagan worship and especially concerning to the Jews. So this recommendation makes sense because most of the worship that would have taken place at this time would have been in the Jewish synagogue with both Jews and Gentiles present. James simply proposes the best way forward with the community at hand. Jew and Gentile alike are to press on as a family who bears God's name together. Bearing with one another as we bear his name moves the mission forward. How we bear his name is important to the mission. Do we look upon those in our own church as believers who bear his name? Do you recognize that you bear the name of God wherever you go? How are we bearing his name to the surrounding community? I want to conclude by saying being on mission means that we will encounter challenges, disagreements, and threats to the gospel. We see the early church both pressing in and pressing on in the midst of these challenges. They pressed in by addressing gospel distortions that rose up among members of their own community. This revealed some of their own misconceptions, but it also helped remind the larger community of the true gospel. And in doing this, they kept the mission on target. They pressed on by continuing their mission to the Gentiles and calling them toward the responsibility of bearing his name as the people of God. Church, conflict comes. It is part and parcel of being on mission. As we press in, we have the joy of reminding one another of the gospel. And as we press on, we have the responsibility of bearing his name as the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you might give us wisdom. Lord, wisdom to discern distracting conflicts from those that touch the core of mission. Lord, I pray that you might guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit to press in and press on as a community of believers. 
that we might faithfully bear your name to the nations and that we might faithfully remind one another of your gospel, even in the midst of conflict. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.